Hello, I'm Diane Sandberg, one of the hosts of the Everyday Nonviolence podcast. We've been working on a new project, and in the meantime, wanted to re-release some of our past episodes. I caught up with John Vang Tao, an activist with the nonprofit Man Forward. Stay tuned after this recording of the original episode for our conversation about what he's been up to since his original interview in 2018. Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. We're welcoming Mr. John Bang today. Mr. Vang is a dedicated activist working toward a world where young men of every culture explore their place in the world and what it means to be a man and what it means to be manly. Mr. Vang began his journey years ago. I'm not sure exactly where, but we're going to have him talk a little bit about that and has worked through both his volunteer efforts and his paid vocation to address the issue that now circles our globe, how we fail our young men and what can we all do? Mr. Bang comes to us today to discuss his passage through the world, from an indoctrination of violent culture to a life dedicated to active nonviolence. Welcome, John. We're delighted to have you as part of our ongoing commitment to be a voice for justice, nonmilitarism, and for social change. Thank you. I'm pretty honored to be here, and uh, it's always good to uh, talk with you, Joanne. It might be helpful for all of us to hear a little bit about yourself, who you are now and where you've been. Are you willing to share a little of your personal story, please? Sure, sure. Right now, I am working for the government in a uh, program aimed at uh, helping women and minority-owned businesses get a level playing field when they're trying to get government contracts. So that's you know what I get paid to do during the daytime, but... On the nights and the weekends, I actually spend a lot of my time doing community work, organizing around uh, ending gender-based violence, prison reform, and building community uh, where I'm at and helping uh, young people. I know that you have a young family started and things are really (laughs) changing over quickly. Yeah, I recently just got married and then I have a uh, child on the way. Yeah, it's really... uh, becoming very real, real quickly. (laughs) Well, it is always interesting to run into someone, a young person, because you are fairly young here, who has made a leap from trying to grow up and get all the things in order in their lives, and then all of a sudden become dedicated to making the world a better place, in addition to working full-time, having family. It's quite an amazing process you've gone through. Can you tell Tell us about a moment in your life when things became different for you personally. A huge moment in my life where I I really felt like I 
woke up was right after I was uh, arrested by the police and uh, was sent in the county jail. And uh, I was reflecting upon like my life and what I did to get to that point, you know, because I had just gotten arrested for uh, second degree murder. And I was sent in the county just in a state of confusion. And it, it felt really surreal. Is this real? You know, this is something I saw on TV. I, I start analyzing my life, like how did how did I get here? What did I do? And that is actually when, when I started really waking up and asking myself, why did I do these things? Why didn't I say no? Or why did I say stop? Or why didn't I choose a different path? So that, that was really uh, a moment in my life where I was lost, but yet I was finding my way. Did you ever come to any conclusions why you would let your life go this direction? Yeah. Um, as, as I was thinking through it, and growing up, I, I reflected upon the things that my grandma told me when I was a little kid or my mom told me or um, things I saw on TV, seeing uh, people hearing my parents say, hey, boys don't cry. If somebody hits you, you hit them back. And I bet you had to hit them harder, too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was that. And then also just really suppressing a lot of natural reactions like the, the feelings and emotions that I had and then not really dealing with them, but just being defensive and protecting myself by putting that part of myself away, the vulnerable part, so that I can uh, manage the situation that's in front of me. And that's what I was taught, how do I can resolve things or uh, deal with things. And uh, for a moment in time, that was what worked. But as I got older, you know, I, I discovered that things just escalated. You know, that didn't really resolve anything and uh, situations became more serious and people got hurt and eventually, you know, lives are lost. My guess is, and I might be wrong here, that there was an extraordinary amount of pressure, not just in the upbringing, but in the people around you. Everybody was doing the same thing and pushing. Is that true? Yeah. For a lot of the young men that I grew up with, you had to live up to this standard or uh, what people are calling the box, the man box. You got to be tough. You can't let somebody uh, talk down on you. And you got to present this bravado of hyper masculinity and being uh, really strong not showing fear and just not being vulnerable at all. And then when you are doing that, you are accepted socially in your group of friends. And then also, this is what we thought women were attracted to, too. So we worked really hard to present this persona. And I, I really think that it was more of like a mask that I put on. And because internally and deep inside, the things that I saw growing up and the things I, I experienced seeing my mom and my dad interact, it, it really hurt when I saw those things happen in front of me. Seeing women being mistreated or just not being valued, it hurt and it made me question, but I didn't have the words to describe it at that time. I experienced it. I knew that something was not right. It didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know how to articulate it or find my voice. So I just kind of sat back and like watched it all happen. Seeing my relatives work through conflicts within our own families where the men were treated differently and the things they said were carried a different weight from the women. 
and how when they were trying to speak up or voice their thoughts that it was shunned or not really respected and not really valued. You know, seeing those things, it, it really like impacted me on how I should respond or how I could respond and what worked and what didn't work. At that age, I, I just kind of took that as this is how we uh, respond and act to be socially acceptable. Well, I actually have two questions in this. If you were to look at the young man that you used to be, say at six or at 10, what would you like to have heard that would have addressed the need that you just described, the lack of articulation, the lack of awareness as to what things are right and true? I really feel that emotionally, it would have been good to know and understand that it's okay to cry and that I am going to feel upset whether it's angry or feel hurt, that these emotions are okay. You know, you have your really high and happy emotions and you have your low emotions where you're not happy or uh, angry or disappointed. Uh, learning those different types of feelings and names of feelings to say, oh, you know, I'm not happy right now. Uh, I need some space and different ways to like express myself that it was okay to feel those things. And that it is not something that would last. Yes, you may feel angry right now or uh, frustrated, but it'll pass and things will get better. So I, I think knowing that would have been really helpful for me to you know, voice that out and articulate that to my parents. It might have helped others learn how to deal with it and then also helped me uh, feel like I was being heard. That my thoughts and my feelings were being valued too instead of just me just... Uh, you know, crumpling it all up and stuffing it away and then not really having those feelings being acknowledged or resolved. I am fascinated by your term man box. Part of me wonders if part of the problem is, is that when we build this man box around ourselves and our feelings, our vulnerabilities, our vision of what our world should look like, maybe we forget to tell people this is just a small piece of their lives. Maybe if we built the imagery so this was off in this corner, we could go to it. But there's this whole other life that we are expected to lead. Maybe that would be more useful. But you're right. People define in every culture, not just in the Southeast Asian culture, not just in the Hmong community, what it means to be masculine based on a very tight container. Yeah, yeah. I learned some of this stuff while I was in there. And then as I came out, I, I started uh, reading articles and then also watching like TED Talks about some of these things about masculinity. It really connected a lot of the dots, you know, the different events that happened in my life. It really helped me make sense of all of that. Seeing that this is something that is social, it wasn't just something that men forced or enforced upon boys as they were growing up, but it's also something that women also enforce too. I remember hearing uh, some of my friends in the African community that their mom would lock them out of the house because after school they came home, they got beat up by some other kid, and then their mom said, don't come back home until you know you defend yourself. I'm not going to let you in. You got to fight for yourself, and I'm not going to let you run into the house like a coward. They felt an immense pressure to go back and retaliate or do something to retain their identity or who they was, or else they would not be welcomed back inside the house. And just me hearing that, that was so uh, painful and 
sad that this child was coming home looking for support, having all types of fear and their their mom or their dad saying like, you go back right out there or don't come home. You're not, that type of behavior is not welcomed here. It is very interesting how physical violence in so many minds needs to be attacked with physical violence. There doesn't seem to be space for conflict resolution or for talking things through or confronting a person, even though that takes just as much courage as going out and beating somebody up. It is quite amazing mental adjustment we need to make the leap over. But as this is a program on active nonviolence and the prevention of violence, and these are enormous topics, can you tell us a little bit where your personal commitment came from? I understand that you were locked up for a while and you had plenty of time to think there. But what made you move into active nonviolence? Well, I would say a big part of it is growing up. At age 23, my mind was still fairly young, and uh, that was actually when I got incarcerated. I wasn't able to slow down and listen to my body or listen to my uh, emotions and reactions. Because at that point, I, I really would just responded out of fear or else responded out of uh, just instinct. Here I am in my 30s now, my reactions to a lot of life situations are a lot more measured and I think a lot more critically about things before I re react and respond. A good story uh, or example of this, after I had uh, came home from prison, I was visiting a friend in Duluth. You know, they were going to college up there. They wanted to go out to one of the bars and uh, whatnot to unwind after uh, finals. So, you know, here we are in the bar and we're dancing and having fun. A lot of the people around us are inebriated. My friend, he had a girlfriend and there was another guy that was trying to hit on her and he just would not take no. He tried to grab her hand and all that stuff. And, you know, that situation escalated to a point where it was coming pretty closely to an altercation. And the old me in that situation would have responded violently like, oh, you know what? I got to protect my friend. I got to support my friend. I, I got to do something. I would have, you know, responded violently and jumped in and there would have been a fight. But me listening to my body, knowing that like, ooh, this is escalating. This is not right. I, I have other options. It, it allowed me to listen to my body and slow down to think through the process and say, you know what? No, my friend... His girlfriend is a level-headed person. She can defend herself. And there are security guards here, and they are walking this way already. They see this situation already. And another one of my friends that was there with us was getting ready to do that. And I like, no, you know, I, I'm not going to jump into that situation like that because it's already been taken care of. And she was like, no, 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 to tell her boyfriend no, and then to tell the other guy no, too. You know, the situation was stopped by the security guard. They broke everything up. People went their separate ways and the night ended up okay. But then afterwards, after the event, you know, my one friend was like, why didn't you support us? Why didn't you jump in and do anything? And I was like, no, I'm not doing that because she is very capable and she's not helpless. There are security guards there. That's not how I choose to respond to situations like this because it can quickly escalate and people could very well get hurt. And we wouldn't be here talking about this right now either. 
That's a pretty interesting story. I will say that not only do you now have a mind-body connection, but you also have an awareness of the logic. And in addition to all this, everybody walked away alive. Sometimes that is absolutely the most perfect solution. And I just love the way that you respected the woman who was able to take care of herself and handle not just a fairly obnoxious drunk, but also the boyfriend. That's a pretty good story. I think we, as men, don't give women enough credit. Uh, we always, I, I guess, stuck in that stereotype of like the helpless woman that needs Prince Charming to come rescue her. And that's part of that man box that, that fits into the stereotype of what a man is. And then it really devalues the women and their own personal power. Yes, it does. Yeah. I know your paid work is with young men. Uh, with that government agency you were talking about working with minority-owned and women-owned businesses. Can you tell me what this actually means and how does it work toward your greater goals? So for me being incarcerated and locked up and coming home and uh, seeing the struggles and experiencing the struggles of somebody who is a part of our community who wants to contribute and be a part of the community once again, but then the stigmas in society that just does not allow for a person with a criminal background to become a part of our community again. And by that, I mean not being able to find a job, not being able to uh, find a place to live, uh, even though they can pay for it and they have not committed any crimes and they're following all the rules, uh, not even jaywalking, and yet they cannot be a part of the community again. That really hit home because... I believe that if people are genuinely trying to contribute and be a part of the community again, I, I want our community to be able to recognize that we need to give them a chance or else we are condemning them to failure. If you don't give anybody a chance to build a life once again, you're really saying that you are no longer a part of our community and then you ask a question, why is there recidivism? Why do people go back? Because there is no opportunity for them to actually be a part of our community. So a bigger picture for me is to start up a business where I'm employing people with a background and giving them the opportunity to get a job, find a place to live, and helping the community be more aware of this uh, issue and more acceptance in the community for this. I hear that it is both a spiritual commitment and also a historical injustice that you are trying to write. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It really strikes home to me because I feel like I'm pretty lucky to be able to have a job and to even work for the government. I mean, never in a million years prior to me getting this job would I ever think that I'm working for the government, being in, in a position of power where I can open doors for others, especially with my background. It, it's unbelievable, but I also appreciate and respect that this is an opportunity that I was given, and I understand that not everybody is afforded this opportunity because it's really economic violence that's being committed against a lot of folks. Well, it's also, I think, unconstitutional. The fact is, is that there's not supposed to be cruel and unusual punishment and being delegated to second-class citizenship for a lifetime for whatever mistake was made. And I'm sorry, someone died. Mm -hmm. But 
your life being forfeit because of a death at 23 is over the top of even what the state thinks is appropriate. And they think a lot of punishment's appropriate. Mm -hmm. So I, it's not just the unfairness and the consequences of a felony being forever. It is also indicative of our society that we find people disposable. And that is, I think, what you're addressing. I know you have been working for prison reform. Are you also working for the uh, laws that govern felons, too? Yeah, there's some varying movements that are happening in the community. Uh, some of the men that I've worked with, they've been at the legislature trying to create more policy around uh, restoring people's rights, more specifically around the right to vote. There's a bill or a legislative uh, policy that they are trying to push right now to give people their right to vote once they are here out in the community working or not incarcerated anymore. And I, I think that that's a, a really uh, good point. I mean, if you're considered safe enough to be out here in the community, you should be considered safe enough to vote. Uh, more often than not, you're here also paying taxes too because you're working to support yourself or your family. You should have representation in our government. Yes. And that's what you're saying very clearly. Thank you. Now, I know that you've begun working with a new project, Man Forward, and I know you were with Power of People. But Power of People is something you are no longer doing at the moment, correct? Yeah, not actively. I go to a support group and I support men uh, while I'm there and as a participant. But let's talk about your new project, Man Forward. We'd love to hear what this is and how it came about. Can you tell us what you hope to achieve and where you're going with it? Yeah, so when I came home, I saw these things that were happening in my community. As I said, when I was growing up, I noticed these things that did not sit right with me, injustices in our culture and our community. In the Hmong community, I felt like I was alone because there's a lot of patriarchal practices that was really prevalent. I, I just did not see any movement towards correcting that. And uh, I stumbled upon this group called Man Forward, a project that is around Southeast Asian men. It's actually a play on Man Up. Because you often hear guys say to other guys, man up, man up, stop crying and all this stuff. It's a play on the words. Instead of just manning up, man forward, you know, do something positive with your energy or your actions. And the goal of this volunteer group is to end gender-based violence in our community and build new practices of masculinity and manhood and brotherhood and new practices. The way I grew up is... A lot of the women in our community really took care of the men, meaning they cooked, they cleaned, they really uh, mothered a lot of the men. The sisters were trained to become housewives and do all that for their brothers. So the men grew up really privileged. They didn't have to learn how to uh, do laundry, how to use a broom to, or how to cook for themselves or wash dishes. Something that we have done with the youth is take them out on a retreat to a cabin or camping or whatever, where they're away from mom or sisters. They don't have somebody cooking or cleaning after them. It's teaching them, all right, what are we eating? How do we prepare rice? How do we cut up the vegetables? How do we cut up meat and cook it together? And then what happens after that? We cook and we clean afterwards. And then along with that, we also have conversations about emotions. How do you acknowledge that? How do you deal with that? What's gender equity? You know, what's, what does it mean to be a man? 
I'm delighted to hear you, maybe in 10 years, when you tell me what conclusions you've come to. <laughs> what does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a man in a patriarchal society? Because that's what you're describing. What will stay the same and what will change? Yeah, our, our hope is to get young men to change their thought. Because right now, a lot of young men, the way we grew up, we went to sleep and we woke up and food ended up on the table. We came and we ate. And then afterwards, you know, we left to go play video games or whatever. And somehow the dishes got cleaned and everything was cleaned up again. And then, you know, later on again, oh, we're hungry. There's food on the table again. And then there's not really a lot of responsibilities. I, I believe that, you know, building these skills within them is also building them for towards success in life. Because believe it or not, a lot of the women in the Hmong community have really uh, excelled because they had responsibility and had experienced some of these duties, things that have helped them prioritize what's important in their lives so that when they're going to school, it, it really comes into play. When they get their first job, it really comes into play. Where a lot of the young men, they're really falling behind. They don't have the structure or the discipline to be able to uh, manage that part of their life. It's probably the first time I've heard it articulated quite this way that says entitlement is part of our global problem. The work you're doing sounds really important and it's really grassroots, important stuff for every single young man. An incredible goal. What can people do to help you achieve this stuff? Is there a place where people who are not part of Man Forward, not part of the Southeast Asian community, maybe not even male? Maybe it's best if we were male. How can we be useful and or join this project? So Man Forward, it's really volunteer-based. We are in the process of becoming a 501c3, doing fundraising around that, just building momentum towards a larger movement in the community. We have a Facebook page, uh, Man Forward. It's a community group. You can reach out to us in that way. So Man Forward. Other ways, we're needing uh, finances to help us uh, keep things going because it's purely volunteer-driven, and a lot of times uh, the work that we do, we're contributing uh, money to host workshops, to take boys on retreats. Uh, but the one thing that we are intentional about is there's a lot of grants out there that we don't want to purposely take advantage of because those grants are geared towards women. Uh, for uh, domestic violence shelters or women's programs, because there's really not a lot of support for those programs. That's something that we are intentional about, not sucking up the money from those type of uh, resources. Thank you for that. I do know that when we were speaking a little bit earlier, you mentioned that a great deal of the work is about preventing gender-based violence. And if I'm hearing you right, it is mostly at the a childhood stage, or are you working with young men who have already had some issues with this? Working with the young men is part of it. We are also doing work around men who have come home. A real big piece is immigration, because a lot of Southeast Asians are here as refugees, but if they get caught up in the justice system, their status as a refugee is in limbo. This is much more prevalent in the Cambodian community where there is a repatriation agreement between the United States and Cambodia where they are really deporting a lot of men who have been uh, incarcerated and came home. The larger impact of this is a lot of those men have served their time, came home, built lives. I'm talking about wife, kids, house, 
sometimes it's been 10 to 15 years since they've committed their crimes and they've served their time. They are now taxpaying members of the community, a lot of times valued members of the communities, pastors at churches, leading youth groups. And these families are getting torn apart. These men are getting deported back to Cambodia. It's a country that they've never been in as an adult or as even a, a child. Because sometimes people were born in refugee camps, so they don't even know what Cambodia looks like. Uh, a lot of them have grown up as Americans, don't speak Cambodian, so they don't really know how to survive there. They don't know how to find their way around there. And just for us to tear up these families and drop this person right there into an environment where they're not really familiar with, it's, it's really, as you said earlier, cruel and unusual punishment. And I am hearing um, through the internet, and I, I can't vouch for the accuracy, but even small vandalism crimes as a teenager and the record wipe is not getting in the way of the immigration service deciding that people are criminals because the wiping doesn't apply at federal level in that particular case. One would have thought the juvenile sanctity was sacrosanct, but it apparently is not when it comes to exporting people. Also, like for those that don't get deported, they're here, they're unable to get a work visa. These are like guys with skills. One guy I know, he is a really talented carpenter. He can build with his hands a solid wood pool table, a bed post, a baby's cradle. And he's not able to utilize these skills to earn him a living and support his kids. He's a grandpa now. And he, he's trying to do right for his family and be a contributing member of society. But the laws and the policies that our government has right now, it's making it impossible for him to be this person that he wants to be. I know there is only so many ways you can show up in addition to having a full-time job, having a young family, and doing all the activism work you can. But you are a very articulate man. And your ability to influence the legislatures might actually be one of the callings you might consider in the future <laughs> because you really understand what the problems are. I appreciate that. But we're going to pull it back to your personal story because, of course, this is really about people living lives of active nonviolence, lives of pacifism, being a voice for peace, being a voice for justice. Now I'm going to ask you, how does being a voice for active and principled living show up in your neighborhood, your job, your personal relationships? Well, for me, it's really, I feel like this is me being a responsible member of my community and not just being somebody who's sitting on the sidelines and watching the news and saying, oh my God, I read this headline, this has happened in my community and oh my gosh, how did that happen? And being uh, an active member of the community, taking responsibility, talking to people about these issues and helping to teach uh, young men that you have a different path. Let's, let's slow down. Let's talk about what happened. What options do we have? And for me, that's really me being a member of the community. Whereas when I was younger, before I got incarcerated, there was a part of me that did not really care whether I lived or died the next day. I didn't see value in my own life. And when I didn't see value in my own life, it was really hard for me to see value in another person's life. So I didn't really feel like I was a part of the community. 
But now, you know, I have lots of uh, relationships in the community to keep me grounded. And they, they really keep me going uh, because I want to make the community better. And I want to do this not only just for myself, because I, I see the long term impacts of this, that this is something that I want to do and create, not just for me, but for my children, for everyone's children, the next generation of folks who are growing up here in America, because a safer community for everybody and a better community where everybody can be treated more equally and have equal opportunity at reaching things and attaining things is a better community for everybody. I love your passion, but let's make it a little more real. <laughs> Can you tell us about a time when you fell short of being the activist you wish to be and what happened? It's, it's hard to really connect with younger people. And I, I did, really didn't realize this when I was growing up, when I heard people who are older than me really say like, yeah, it's so hard for me to connect with young people when I was young. I'm like, but you can just talk to us. Right. So here I am. I, I've learned so much and I've been through so much. And a friend of mine works at the St. Paul Juvenile Detention Center. And he really stressed how important it was just to have real conversations and trying to get to know them. But in my mind, I was like, oh, yes, you know, I'm going to go in there and help them out. And really, I, I really stumbled there because I went in there I really feel like I was patronizing them and really saying like, hey, you guys should do this to make your life right. And what they really needed was just to somebody to see them, to see them and uh, who they were and uh, acknowledge them and just have a normal conversation with them, not saying like, oh, my gosh, you should do this. You should do that. I think you must be well ahead of the game to realize <laughs> that nobody wants to be patronized <laughs> in your early 30s. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Is there anything you're looking forward to do right in the immediate future to be part of the change agent you hope to be for your lifetime? Well, in my own family, I'm soon to be a father, and I, I look forward to that. Actually, uh, I'm working on becoming more of a social father for a lot of the young men that I encounter in my life. It's even more real now that I'm going to be a father and changing up the practices that's in my own family. A lot of times it's easy to talk about other people's families and what's going on in the community, but when it's your own family, when it's your grandpa that you're trying to say, hey, grandpa, uh, stop womanizing and chasing after all these young girls, uh, be here and help our family out and love my grandma. It's hard to do that because there's a sense of like respect to who they was and what they've done for your family so far, but then to fight against that and say like, no, what you're doing is wrong. I still love you, but you can't continue doing this to our family. And I, that's something that I struggle with because it's so personal. You know, I, I'm working on that, but it, it's just something that I'm still continuing to work towards. I think this is something that is really big in the Hmong community because a lot of the young people, they see that things aren't going right and they have a uh, belief that, oh, that's the older generation. We'll just let them do that until they uh, pass away and then the newer generation will build new practices. But really what ends up happening is before that happens, somebody who is uh, really entrenched in that old practice rises up and takes on that 
patriarchal position and the practice continues. So I, I wanted to work on that in my own life and my own family and changing that up. It's a good life vision. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for being with us today. It has been a real pleasure and an honor. You're welcome. I, I always enjoy talking to you. And uh, it's a real honor to be able to share this piece of myself and my life. Such a great conversation between John Vang, now John Vang Tao, and Joanne Perry, a longtime member of the FNVW community, alternative to violence facilitator, and social justice advocate. Recently, I spoke with John to hear how he has continued his efforts to mobilize Southeast Asian men to transform patriarchal power systems and end gender-based violence. John, last time that you spoke with the podcast was in 2018. Tell us what you've been up to since then. Are you yeah. still doing work with Man Forward? Uh, yeah, yeah. I am doing work with Man Forward still. And recently, Man Forward became a 501c3 nonprofit. So we stepped up a little bit more from just all being all volunteer led. We have maybe, I think, one or two positions now that are paid positions. And then we have more of a structure. We have a board chair, which is me. And uh, I work pretty closely with the executive director to help support our board and our goals and initiatives that we're trying to do to help increase understanding in our community about gender equity and stop uh, gender-based violence. And then we are continuing to do our work to end the deportation of Southeast Asian Americans who have came here after the war. And that work continues on. And that was just something that happened just this year. So it's been a long time coming. It's been about 10 years for the organization Man Forward to get to this point where we're like, all right, we're official. Now we can uh, ask for donations and people can give it to us and get those uh, tax deductions. And we can feel like start moving into the next steps is developing programming and uh, doing taking on to larger initiatives. That's really exciting. Did you guys have to do a lot of pivoting during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, that was interesting. We actually embraced it and looked at it as an opportunity. Because since that time, we started doing some political education uh, workshops using Zoom. And we have folks from all over the country tuning in and joining us for those Zoom political education discussions. And we talk about various issues, trying to deepen the gender uh, analysis and the understanding of gender-based violence and patriarchy. So that has been something that's been good for us because we've been able to reach into different places. We've also held like workshops using Zoom for fraternities talking about consent. And that was something that was really interesting because we were more accustomed to doing things in person and being able to engage with them and look at the body language and communicate with them. And this was a little bit different, but we adapted. And I think that that's what everybody's learning to do in the pandemic and then learning how to adapt again after the pandemic to the different changes that are occurring right now. Absolutely. That is the truth. So what are some of the plans for the organization going forward? I think going forward, we plan to be more active in engaging men. So now we have a few men scattered in the Midwest, some in East Coast and then some in the West Coast. So we have a couple hubs here, and then we're trying to develop the chapters 
and provide more support for the local folks. And then we are also providing support services and technical um, uh, advice to different nonprofit organizations that we work with because they often work with men who are either coming home from prison or else men in the community who are organizing with them, helping to create the change that we want to see in our community. But what we have noticed and seen is that a lot of times the men come in with a lot of trauma and it's trauma from childhood, trauma from relationships, trauma from patriarchy. And it's caused them to sometimes derail a lot of the conversations or else be really defensive and not supportive of the women who are uh, doing the work or else the queer folks that are doing the work. And it's been really hard to organize with them. And I know that they have great intentions, but it's, it's hard for them to come in and interface in this environment because a lot of the movements now are being led by women and queer folks. And it's been, they've been doing the work for a long time and haven't really been recognized. But now in this environment, they are stepping out and not afraid about the various perceptions from the community and saying like, you know what, we need to step up and not be afraid to speak out and continue to uh, take on these leadership roles. So the men, they see it, they want to join in and support but it's, it's been a challenge, and that's what we've been hearing from the women and the queer folks. So uh, they've called on us to hold accountability sessions with the men and have conversations with the men to, one, help them understand that some of these things that they are doing, although it's not intentional, it's causing harm. And two, to hold them accountable, because I think that it's not their intention to cause harm. It's just there are some things that they don't quite understand. And they see things a little bit differently. And I think that that is part of what is needed to build community and to build understanding between folks. Because for a long time, they haven't really had to be accountable to some of these practices that's been out there. And for them, it's like, why, why am I doing this? Why, do, why can't I just do like what I've always done? So this, it's good. It's good because I think this is... Part of the mission of Man Forward is to, you know, to heal from the trauma and then to transform masculinity, because I think that the way the masculinity has been happening in our community, uh, especially the Southeast Asian community, has been very toxic and harmful towards women and queer folks. And I think being able to make space for women and queer folks to flourish and thrive helps our community do better. Absolutely. Looking back on where you were in 2018 and where Man Forward was, if you were interviewed by the podcast back then, how do you think your responses or kind of the way you approached the podcast would be different? Uh, I think that there would have been a lot of things that I would have not known because I, I think over these past three years, becoming a father and looking at things a little bit differently too, it's really helped me to really understand like how important this stuff is the work that we're doing and also I, I've grown to appreciate some of these things that my parents used to tell me about me as a child and the frustrations that I brought to them and then how much love and care that I have for my child to like oh you know what 
you know, you do these things, it's annoying, but I love you. And for some reason, it's just so adorable and cute. And then knowing that I have to say no sometimes, despite even loving my child and wanting them to not be sad or upset, that I have to set down boundaries and guide, guidelines because I want to build a family based on a foundation of values. And that begins with what I'm showing my child. That begins with the practices that I am showing them and uh, teaching them and the words that are actually coming out of my mouth. Because the kids, they learn and watch everything you do and say. And, you know, this goes on and even into like a lot of the work that I'm doing with the men is finding more support for them because a lot of families I'm finding now are broken or are uh, going through divorce since the pandemic and trying to figure out the family dynamics. And for folks that have a heart big enough to take on the children of a different family, you know, to take them on and uh, help raise them and be social fathers in the community. I think that that is one thing that has really changed since 2018 is I, I understand that it's not enough just to be a man in the community. It's I, I have to help raise the kids in my community too, and not just see within my bloodline or my immediate family to see that, you know, those kids who are, you know, running around down the street, you know, they need guidance, they need support, just like I did at one time when I was running around the street and trying to find myself and just trying to find a place to hang out as a uh, youth. Because I, I, that's one of the hardest things is I don't think that there are that many places where kids can hang out anymore uh, aside from the park or anything. Because I, I know that, like, for instance, there was the libraries where kids were hanging out at the libraries and then it became disruptive. And now some of the libraries had called the cops on the kids and were like, you guys are making too much noise. And that caused some conflict. too. And the kids were just like, we needed some place to hang out. We thought that this was the place. And now we have to go someplace else now. So there's a lot of learning that has occurred over these past three years. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time, John. We appreciate it. Wonderful. Good to meet you and talk with you too, Diane. I've been talking with John Vang Tao, board chair of Man Forward. To learn more about Man Forward, visit their website at man-forward.org. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.